like that song this morning. It's kind of like uh, Lord of the Rings or something. We're ready to go on an epic quest. Well, uh, it's good to see you guys this morning. Let me just see real quick, where are my morning people at? Let me just see loud and proud out there. Where are my morning people? And where are my people that avoid morning people until they've had at least a couple cups of coffee? Yeah, there's usually two different types of groups. I think, I, I think I'm probably the morning person uh, at my house, although it is a process for me of waking up. Uh, but once I get going, I'm ready to go. Um, but I think as morning people and as those that aren't morning people, we can all agree that the worst is being woken up abruptly. And uh, especially when you're in a deep sleep, you're in a good sleep, and then you just get woken up uh, abruptly from that sleep. And uh, I, so this past week, I've been uh, home with the kids. I've had the boys uh, myself. Jess has been traveling. And so, um, you know, typically we sort of divide, it's, you know, we, it's never been spoken of, but it's sort of like we kind of divide the noises in the house. You know, like I think she's tuned in to the noises that involve the kids. I've subconsciously, I promise, tuned those noises out uh, a lot of times. And, uh, but I'm like, the bad guy noises are me. Like that's, I know that if there's a bad guy noise or a loud something smashing somewhere, like it's go time for me. And so, uh, but when you're home by yourself, you get all the, all the noises are now mine. And so I'm sleeping bad because I know this. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on things. And so um, I just, I was not sleeping well. And finally I get down into this deep, deep sleep and then all of a sudden, I hear this sound, and it's such a, it's, it's a strange sound. And immediately, I'm like, is that a man's voice? Bad guy noise. Like, I'm ready to go. Like, adrenaline's pumping, and I'm like, I'm up. I'm ready to deal with the situation, whatever it is. And so I'm, like, sneaking out, because it's coming from, like, the main area of our house. And so I'm, like, you know, I'm, I'm like, stealthing in there to see what's going on. And as I'm kind of doing that, I'm like, Wait, that's like a familiar voice. Like, what is that? And I'm like, Batman? Is that you? And so I start to like go and investigate, and sure enough, the sound is to the Batmobile, to the Batmobile, to the Bat, like over and over again. Batman is telling me to go. I'm like, Batman, it is like four in the morning. Like, we are not going to the Batmobile, especially right now. And I come to, to realize, because I'd never heard this sound before, that this was Miss Aaron's gift to Eli for his birthday, and it was a Batman watch. Now, um, so I go, and like somehow this alarm was set for four in the morning, and I go in there, and I like, I shut off the watch, and I'm just like, I'm thinking to myself, like, Thank you, Miss Aaron. Like we love, but he loves this little gift. But I'm like, here, here's just a public service announcement to the watchmakers out there. Never for any reason should you have to put an alarm on a kid's watch. Like they don't got to be nowhere, okay? And if they do, I will get them up. You don't ever wake for any reason a sleeping child. And here's the other flaw in the, 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 the only time that those alarms get set, because I've seen it happen before. It's always the middle of the night. I don't even think there's a PM on those watches. It's like, what AM are we going to hit them with, you know? And somehow he had set the, the watch. And so, and then it's funny too, because like you can't ever figure out in the middle of your slumber, like how to turn it off. So you just end up snoozing it. And then you're like, snooze. And, like, and then a little bit later, it's like, to the bat mope. Like, oh, you know, back at it. And I was telling this story to, uh, to Mitch and Paul came over to hang with us on Friday night. We had all our kids playing together. I was telling them this story. And then they, they went home that night. And Mitch is like, dude, you're never going to believe who woke me up at 4 a.m. this morning. 
He's like, in the middle of the night, I swear, to the Batmobile, to the Bat. And I'm like, dude, I promise I did not put that. Somehow that watch had ended up like in his stuff when he had left. I didn't do it, but he got a little taste of the Batmobile too. And I, I, I was just, I was laughing at this. I was like, what are the chances? And now I think I might just use this as a fun little thing to drop in people's stuff. So check your, your purse when you go home today. Make sure that Batman is not... Uh, getting ready to send you to the Batmobile. But wake-up calls can be really unpleasant. And in, a, in fact, the majority of them, especially if you're sort of woken up abruptly, can be really unpleasant. But there is one that is absolutely essential, and it's one that we've been looking at really in sections through Paul's letter to, the, to, the, to Ephesus. And this letter to Ephesus really is its, its own wake-up call where Paul is, is waking the Ephesian church up to some things. In fact, in Ephesians 5, 15, he gives this very specific reference in Scripture where he says, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. And so Paul is very clearly saying here to the bat, no, he's not saying that, but he is saying it's time to wake up, it's time to mobilize, it's time to get moving, we've fallen into a slumber, and his goal is to wake the people of God up. And it really, throughout this series, it's been a call to God's people, to his church, a call to mobilize, to get up and to get moving again. And maybe for some reason you found yourself stagnant in your faith journey, or maybe you've sort of found yourself sidelines in sort of the greater mission of the church, and uh, for whatever reason you've just You've kind of gotten a little bit sleepy or caught in a slumber. And so over the course of these last several weeks, we've been saying, hey, it's time to get up. It's time to wake up. It's time to get moving again. And the first move we talked about was this move to know God more. And then we talked about this move to be more of who God created us to be. And then we talked about this move that Stephen talked about last week, which is to do more, and it's not necessarily for us to do more, but to allow God to do more through us. And, and so that's what we talked about last week, and then this week we're talking about this call to love more. And this is not overstating it to say this, that we can claim to know God, we can be seeking to be who we were created to be, we can be inviting him to do more in us and through us, but if we do not love, we are nothing. All of our effort is futile. And you think that sounds, you know, a little too bold for me to say it. It's actually Paul who said it to the Corinthians when he said, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy uh, gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body. I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. And so there's simply no way for us to be more and to do more of what God is calling us to do and forget about what we're going to talk about this week, which is to love more. There's simply no way for us to be more like Jesus if we aren't growing in the way of love. And maybe you've heard it said before that we should look like Jesus, we should act like Jesus, and, and this is all true, but 
Why is anybody telling us to smell like Jesus? Now, I, I'll, I'll get to it. I promise we'll make sense of this. But you hear that deodorant commercial that talks about how scent is the strongest sense tied to memory? I think that's true. I've definitely had those scents that I'm not going to be quick to forget. And uh, one of them happened just this week where I got into the van and I'm like, what is that smell? Like, I can't even be in here. Like, we're all, like, gagging. You know, like, it's that intense. And I'm like, is somebody socks in here? Or, like, what is it? And uh, nobody, everybody had their shoes on, you know, because my boy's got some stinky feet, you know. And I'm like, it could be it. But it turned out that somebody had left, like, an old container of milk that had got, like, squeezed out. Stinky, rotted milk in the heat that's cooking in your car like a science experiment a smell you're not quick to forget. And uh, I was like, you know, another one is like King's Island in the summer. You know, anytime I smell asphalt and body odor, I'm like, King's Island in the summer. Like, that's, that's what I smell, you know. And actually, then that takes me back sometimes to when I was doing middle school camp, you know, as a student pastor. And there is something about middle school boys, you know. And it's like this, like, axe body spray combined with, like, you know, puberty. And uh, it's just... It's a, it could be a little bit too much, and I just always, like, I smell that smell. I'm like, I go right back to those places. Now, here's what it says about love. Here's what it says about the scent of love in Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. It says that we should follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So in other words, there is this smell, there is this scent to love, and nothing smells better in the nostrils of God. And what I want to talk about today for just a little bit is what does love smell? Like, what is that smell? What do we mean when we say love more? Because we could define it a lot of different ways, but what does it really look like when Jesus calls us to love more and when we're challenged uh, by these letters um, to love more? In fact, somebody had this particular question for Jesus one time. In fact, the question kind of started out like this, and it was one of the experts of the day. And, you know, we got, we got experts today for everything, you know, and the experts are always saying one thing or they're saying another thing. Well, the expert of the day in the Jewish law and really the Old Testament um, there was a lot of religious leaders that were considered experts in the law. And so if you had a question about, you know, how to interpret something or how to, you know, make sense of this, you would go to one of those experts. And this was one of those experts, and he came to Jesus, and he, the expert, is asking Jesus a question. Now, usually the experts, when they're asking Jesus a question, they have an agenda, right? And in this case, um, he's asking this question that he thinks potentially he might stump Jesus on or whatever. But he asks this question, and the question goes like this. It says, what must I do, Jesus, to inherit eternal life? That's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, just on the face value of the question, it's interesting because he's asking the question, how can I, what can I do to earn my inheritance, right? He said, which is an interesting thing because when it comes to inheritance, there's normally nothing you do to inherit it, right? It's just you're born into that family. And so even that question shows that he doesn't quite understand things as you would expect an expert to understand things. And so Jesus, rather than just correcting him, he goes, and says, okay, I'll, I'll bite on this one. You know, so Jesus, like a good teacher, he asks a question with a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So he puts it back on him. He says, well, you know, expert in the law, how do you interpret the law? How do you interpret it? How do you interpret the Old Testament? 
And so the teacher, feeling pretty, you know, he's flaring out his chest, like, I've got this one. Of course I know the answer to this one. And so he answers the question, and the answer, he says, is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, well, yeah, that's a good answer. That's the right answer on paper. And so Jesus commended him for his answer. And this follow-up question, however, the expert then asks a follow-up question, which completely makes the point that he doesn't understand love at all. Because his follow-up question was this. Seeking to justify himself, the scripture says, he asked, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. If you want to turn with me, we're going to look at Luke 10, 30 through 37, because here what Jesus does is he's like, all right, I'm going to answer a, I'm going to, I'm going to answer a question with a question, and now I'm going to answer a question with a story. And so he tells them a story to make the point about what it looks like uh, to be a neighbor. And so we're going to make some connections today uh, to that text about what it looks like to love more. And so Jesus responds in this way. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and he saw him, and he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he paid and gave them, he paid for his stay. He looked after him. He said, when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus asks this question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And so Jesus told him then, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. And so here's some connections we can make about what it looks like to love more. And the first is this, that more love, look out, is going to mean more interruptions. It means more interruptions. And I don't know about you, but I'm not great with interruptions. I'm really not. And part of that is because Uh, As you know, I have ADD, and so, like, I work to not have interruptions. You know, it takes a lot of work to not, because when I get interrupted, and what I used to do is I used to invite interruptions because what would then happen is I could procrastinate, and I wouldn't have to do what I actually needed to do. And so now I've kind of learned to, like, minimize disruptions, right? Avoid interruption. But interestingly, the way of Jesus is in direct contrast to that mindset. And here we see that the priest happened to be going down the same road. We saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too, the Levite. So two guys saw this man, because it says they saw him, but they passed by on the other side. And you could just think, man, that's just completely heartless. But both of them probably had legitimate reasons, right? They had things that they needed to do. And in particular, in that day, according to Jewish law, that man, if he was dead or near dead, would have been considered unclean. And so they would have had to go through, if they had kind of went and tended to this man, they would have had to go through the whole process of being cleansed again. And that was a process that they didn't feel like they had time for. And so instead of helping, they're like, well, hey, 
we got more important things to do here. Who's going to be the priest, right? If I got to spend all this time, like, you know, making myself clean again. And so they continue to carry on. And we have lots of good reasons uh, why we don't stop to help. I told you guys uh, that I was doing that triathlon, and uh, I, I, I survived, so that's good. Uh, the swimming was the thing that I was worried about, and uh, I was like, once I get the swimming out of the way, I'll be good. And so for me, I'm like, I just need to survive the swim. This was a, and Jonathan had given me some good tips, but I didn't get a chance to really practice them. And so I went right back to my old techniques when I got in the water, like head up above the water like a turtle and just try to smash through the water, you know. The least efficient and most tiring way you could possibly swim. The only advantage was I was breathing the whole time because my head was up, you know, rather than like the, you know, I couldn't time it right. I just wanted to drink water, you know, like, and that's not what you want to do when you're swimming. And so I'm out there and I went right back to my old ways, just trying to tear through the water. And in my mind, I'm like, I just have to get through this. Like that's get through this, survive this. And there was like a bit of inner panic because I'm like, this is a far way off. Like, this is a lot longer than I thought it was going to be. And I start to kind of have this feeling, and I'm like, man, what if I just can't keep going? And um, they had some lifeguards, like, stationed along the way. And uh, I was like, well, hopefully I could at least notify one of them, you know. But I'm like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going I'm to gut it out. Like, I'm going to give it all I got. And so I'm doing that, and I'm getting more and more tired. And all of a sudden, I look over, and I see this guy. You mostly just see people's caps as they're swimming. And there is a guy, and he's waving. But he's not waving like he's trying to wave at his family over on the shore. He's waving like he needs something. And uh, I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, like this isn't good. And I'm like, lifeguards, hello? Like are we texting? Like what what is going on? Like this guy needs some help, you know? And so he's he's waving. And in my mind, I'm thinking like, this isn't good. And I was like, and why am I the person that notices him? Like, I can barely get, keep my head above water. Like, if I go over there, like, it's not going to be any help. We're both going to be at the bottom of the lake. Like, there, there is, so I, like, decide to stop and do the best that I can to, like, I'm, like, waving the lifeguard. I'm like, hello, like, I'm doing this. And that's energy that I need, by the way. And so I'm trying to help as best I can. I, I wave, and then finally the lifeguard kind of gets the, I'm like, okay, cool. Help is on the way. Good luck. You know, and I start, and then behind me, I hear this voice, and it's one of the ladies that uh, goes to the gym with us that was doing the triathlon with me, and she's, she's a nurse, and she's just got this, like, sweet, tender spirit about her, and I just hear her voice very calmly say to the man, do you want me to wait with you? And I'm like, I'm the worst human being on the planet. Like, I, I'm, like, out there just tearing through the water trying to survive, and she's like, do you want me to wait with you? I'm like, now, that would have been a neighborly thing to say, right? And I'm like, so, but I missed my opportunity. I'm like, okay, good. At least there's a medical professional there. Like, let's keep going, you know? But thankfully, the guy was okay, just so you know. But it's not always our natural instinct, right? It's not always our natural in- instinct to notice. And we can find lots of reasons to justify why it's not best for us, right? Like mine was, who am I to help? You know, I am not going to be any help. You know, that was my justification. My other justification, now this was further down in the list, is like, hey, this is a timed race. You know, like, I don't got any time to spare. Like, let's go, right? But that thought of like, man, do you want me to wait with you? And that's such a neighborly thing to say. And I think we all have reasons. We're all busy. We all think we're not the right person to help, whatever it is. And opportunities then just keep passing us by. Or rather, we keep passing them by. 
If you look at Jesus' life, he was constantly being interrupted. If you could argue there was an important person that really, if, if we were going to protect his time, it would be Jesus. Yet Jesus invites interruption. Remember with the kids, and the kids are all, the parents are like, Jesus, just hang out with our kids. And he's like, could have easily been like, guys, I'm teaching here. You know, like, are you serious? Like, but he's like, bring the kids to me, you know? And how often do you see somebody in the scriptures and they're reaching out to touch Jesus? And Jesus is like, whoa, like, you know, my power just went out for me. Like, what? What just happened, but he's not upset about it. He's, he's there. He's providing care. He's taking time to heal. He's, he seems to really thrive in the interruptions. It's almost as if Jesus sees the interruptions as something special, and he takes advantage of them. And I'll be honest, because I've, I've had to work back toward inviting interruptions into my life, but the more that I do it, the more that I see Man, it, it really is a special thing to be interrupted. I mean, it's always, you know, when I get my mindset right about it, I've had some of the best moments come out of an interruption. I've noticed that some people just need somebody to listen. And I can just love more by just listening. Like, just stop and listen. Stop being so worried. And, and I've started to position myself out in the coffee house. And uh, now there's some days I hide, I'll be honest, because I got to get stuff done. But I'd like to, when I can, just sit out there and people just come and, hang out. They got stuff going on. We can talk about things. And it's really just like God brings me these interruptions. And if I see them for what they are as a gift from him, it totally changes my ability to love well. And my question is this, what if we've been praying for opportunities? Like, God, just use me more. Like, I don't even know what it looks like, but just, I just want to love more. Just show me what that looks like. I want to do more. I want to be more. All this stuff's been inspiring me. And we pray this prayer. And what if God's looking at us saying, I've given you like a dozen today and you just miss them as interruptions. Like that's me. I'm presenting an opportunity before you. So here's the deal. I have a crazy prayer for you to pray. It's crazy because it it will work. And uh, and, and if it works, you got to be ready for it. It's this. What if you just prayed at the beginning of the week and really the beginning of each day, Lord, disrupt my day. God, just disrupt my day. I invite whatever, whatever interruptions you want to send my way. It will work. You just got to be ready for it. And what if God tuned our heart through that kind of a prayer? Like, God, help me to notice the interruptions as a gift from you. And so more love means more interruptions. More love equals less lines. Notice here that Jesus specifically chooses three groups of people when he tells this parable. Jesus, you know, didn't do anything in an unintentional way, including his storytelling. And he talks about, he talks about a priest, he talks about a Levi, and both of those guys, the Jewish expert would have been very happy about them being the hero of the story. But then he brings a third guy into the story and makes him the hero of the story, and it's the Samaritan. The Samaritan came to where the man was, and he had pity on him. Now, what Jesus was doing, you remember the question that really set this whole thing in motion, which is, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus brilliantly exposed a line that the man had drawn internally, that really society had drawn, that the man was abiding by, and that was this, that Jews were over here, and Samaritans were over here, and those two didn't mix. 
Speaking of unclean, the Jewish experts would have seen the Samaritans as unclean and really rejected by God. They didn't want anything to do with them, and so they avoided them at all costs. And here Jesus exposes that prejudice within him. Because what the man was hoping for was that there would be some exemptions in the love thy neighbor clause, right? Like some of us are hoping that there's, I know there's some exemptions in this. Like who is my neighbor? Because I'm doing pretty good with my actual neighbors or I'm doing pretty good with the people around me that, you know, are easy to love. But for all of us, we wish that the love thy neighbor clause did not include fill in the blank, right? And there's all of these lines that we draw, and we definitely can see so many of those lines so distinctly in our day. And they were there in Jesus' day, too, but Jesus didn't really care very much about what lines the society had drawn for him. It's like, Jesus, didn't somebody tell you there's an invisible line between rich and poor? Didn't somebody tell you that? Didn't somebody tell you, Jesus, that there's clean and there's unclean? And you've been going around like touching unclean people. I don't know if you're aware of that, Jesus, but as a rabbi, you should know there's certain people that are not touchable. You don't touch them. And Jesus, I don't know if you've paid attention, but Jews and Samaritans, they don't mix. And I heard about you up meeting with this woman at the well, and she was a Samaritan, and you were speaking to her about the things of God and the things of life. What's that all about? Or, hey, Jesus, didn't somebody tell you that there's sinners and there's righteous people? And here you, we've been hearing about you, and you've been at the table with these people that are sinful people. Do you know who those people are? How are you able to sit down at a table with them? But with Jesus, those lines were just blurry. They were so blurry that he was stepping over them all the time. So here's what I'm telling you. If we want to love God, want to love, uh, God and love people more, we've got to cross some lines. You're like, finally, something I can do, right? Josh is telling me to cross some lines, right? I'm telling you to cross some lines. And I love it because, you know, with, with things we've done at Kala, those lines are really blurry. Like there's just... People all the time that are different. There's all kinds of people, and I'm loving it because I'm getting to spend time with all kinds of people I normally wouldn't get to spend time with, and it's like there's just not those lines there. I met this couple at Kala, and the man's story was really interesting. He had kind of told me, and we were talking about some different things, and he said, yeah, he's like, actually, um, you know, my heritage is, you know, I, I came from um, the Pakistan region, and, and I grew up as a Muslim, and when I came to America, I, I was very devoted, and I was a part of this mosque, and then he talks about how somebody had crossed the line with him, shared about the love of Jesus. And that man was able to walk from religion into relationship with Jesus because somebody crossed the line. As crazy as it is, the mosque that he used to go to was on this side of the street, and the church he now goes to is right across the street. Somebody crossed the street. Somebody ignored a line. Somebody crossed a line, and because of that, somebody was able to encounter the overwhelming love of Jesus. And so let me ask you this question. What lines have you inadvertently drawn? Maybe it's somebody at work that gives you every reason not to like them. You're like, trust me, if you knew this, if Jesus knew these people, they would know what I'm talking about here, right? And certainly that wouldn't be a line he would make me cross. But what if you cross that line? You demonstrated some love. Maybe it's someone who's wronged you. And you're like, man, they don't deserve my love. And maybe you should maintain a boundary in some way, but what would it look like to cross that line of love? Maybe it's someone that you just disagree on some big topics, right? 
And I'm sure you can find plenty of those people, right? We have a lot of people with a lot of strong opinions out there. And there's probably going to be really easy in a given day to find a lot of people that you can disagree with. But what if you crossed the line and demonstrated love in the way of God? Maybe it's somebody that most everyone else has written off. They're just, they feel unlovable. They stand at a distance. They blockade themselves off. They don't want to be loved. They don't demonstrate at all that they want to be loved. But what if you chipped away and crossed a line in the name of Jesus? Luke 6, 32-36 says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is, a kind, he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful then as your heavenly Father is merciful. Do you realize how countercultural that statement was both then and now? Love your enemies? You know, be, show kindness to the wicked? Like what? Jesus, are you serious when you're saying this? And this is the more that he's calling us into. To take a step further, to don't just love like everybody else loves, but to love more, which means less lines. More love also means more care. It says that the Samaritan, as he traveled, what did he do? He came to where the man was, and when he saw him, what happened? He took pity on him. And we see then how that was described after that, that when he had that emotion and that reaction, he didn't just feel sorry for the man and say, oh man, that stinks, like good luck to you. He went, he bandaged his wounds, he poured on oil and wine, he put him on his own donkey, he took him in, he took care of him and took him to the inn. And then he said, listen, if there's any extra cost, like look after him, I'll return and I'll reimburse you. He took pity on him. The message version says that his heart went out to him. So there was this inner reaction that caused this outward reaction. And no matter how you translate it, the simple reality is that the Samaritan cared. Mr. Rogers, before he was known as Mr. Rogers, was a Presbyterian minister. And his insight here, I think, is spot on. He, he defines caring in this way. His caring comes from the Gothic word kara, which means to lament. So caring is not what a powerful person gives to a weaker person. Caring is a matter of being there, lamenting right along with the one who laments. And so the challenge is that we care enough to actually be there, to actually stop, to actually show up. Caring isn't just a feeling. Feeling sorry for someone is one thing. Taking pity on them is another, and it's a, it, it's, it requires movement. It requires motion. It's a choice. It's a choice to be there in another's pain. It's a choice to love to the point that it hurts. It steps into the hurt with the hurting. I remember this Lumineers song that would say, the opposite of love is indifference. We always think that the opposite of love must be hatred, but the opposite of love is not caring at all. It's indifference. And I think that indifference really, in a lot of ways, is our own defense mechanism because there's so much going on in the world, and we get overwhelmed by it all. And then when the commercial comes on on the TV, and it's like that, you know, whatever music that's all, you know, makes you feel feelings on the inside, and then it's like this, and like I have this gut reaction sometimes to just put this wall up, right, because I don't have the capacity to care, and 
God continues to bring those walls down. We're meant to care, even when it hurts. And as much as being numb or ignoring problems would be a much easier, more pleasant life for us, we are called as followers of Jesus to love more, which means we actually have to care. Apathy avoids action, but compassion dares to care. And rather than arguing, and we have good reasons, right? I've got my own set of problems. Some of you are like, if you, you just, I, I can barely just carry all of the stuff that I have to carry. Sometimes we think, you know, maybe they deserved it in some way. I mean, maybe there's a reason, and maybe at some level that's true, but we have to look past that because compassion dares to care. Paul says this, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. The Samaritan's love was sincere. He made the hurt man's problem his problem. And maybe this seems a little bit too simplistic, but I think there's really generally three kinds of people. There are those who help, there are those who hurt, and there are those who hang back. There's those who help people, there's those that hurt people, and there's those that hang back and let the helpers help people and the, hurt, the, the hurters hurt people. And I think that we need to continue to have the conviction to be among the people who help in one way or another. I had a, a conversation with a lady that we're talking about um, coming alongside with, with Kala, and her name is Cindy, and uh, she, she works with Focus on Youth, and it's an adoption agency, uh, a foster care and adoption agency here in the Westchester area. And I just got really appreciate this conversation with her and her sharing her heart, and she shared a few things with me that really struck me. One of the things is this. She said that every four minutes, somebody's entered into care outside their home. Every four minutes in the United States, somebody enters into care outside of their own home. And so this amount of 20 minutes that we've been talking, you know, there's already five kids that have been entered into care outside their home. And then she said this, and this really struck me. She said, if one family in every church in America took in one child, there would be no longer any need for the foster system. We could totally get rid of the foster system. One person, not 50% of the people, one family in every church in America took in one child, there would no longer be need for the foster system. And that really struck me. And I've heard similar figures when it comes to hunger around the world. It just makes you wonder how many of the world's problems could be solved if we really dared to care. If we let the fullness of Jesus really reign in us and flow through us. And it really doesn't even take all of us. It only takes a few of us daring to care to really change the world. And we can't do everything, right? We can't solve every problem, but each of us can do something. The Apostle um, John, he, he poses this convicting question. He says, if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? More love means more caring. More love equals less excuses. The original question was, which one was the neighbor, which, you know, uh, who is my neighbor? And Jesus turns the question back on him and he says, which one was a neighbor? Don't focus on who your neighbor is, but which one is a neighbor? You be a neighbor. Don't worry about who your neighbor is. You need to be a neighbor. And so which one was a neighbor? And the man can't even say the Samaritan because he despises Samaritans. So he just says the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus challenges him with this. Go and do likewise. 
go and do likewise. Not go and think about it. Go and pray on that. No, not go and circle up with some friends and talk about it. Not wait until just the right time in your life when your schedule allows for it. Not go and listen to a few podcasts about it, a few sermons, read a couple books about it. He says, go and do likewise. You've heard that old phrase, talk is cheap. If talk is cheap, action is costly, but it's worth the price. As much as the Messiah was expected to take the world by force, Jesus didn't take the world by storm. He won the world by love. He didn't win the world by shouting louder, but by leaning in closer. He didn't make empty promises. He stepped in. He listened to the hurting. He healed the broken. He comforted the brokenhearted. He spoke truth drenched in grace. And if that's what worked for Jesus, it should be enough for us. And indeed, love has proven to be the greatest force for change the world has ever seen when it is simply put in motion. And so my challenge, friends, is this. Let's put it in motion. Because there is no sweeter smell than when love is in the air. So let's try to smell like Jesus as best we can. I think that Mother Teresa had it right. Sometimes we think we've got to do something big. But she said, there are no great things, only small things done with great love. What if you just did a small thing this week that was done with great love? Let me close with 1 Corinthians 13, 7 through 13. We'll sing one more time. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledges and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the love that you have demonstrated to us. We're so grateful to be be your children. And as your children, God, you call us to put love on full display. So for those of us that need a little bit more empathy, need a little bit more care and concern, God, I pray that you would stir our hearts for the things that stir your heart. I pray, God, that, and they're going to thank me for this later, God, but I pray that you would disrupt some people's days. I pray, God, for some divine interruptions this week, that we could see you working in our lives. And that we could step in in a simple way to love others, God. And I just pray if there's a line to be crossed that we could cross it. Bring it to mind even right now as we come before you. Who do we need to demonstrate love to that's hard to love? And God, we just want to give you our excuses now so that we can step out and do as the Samaritan did, God. Notice the needs around us and take action. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.